0: Let's, uh, let's remain standing for the reading of God's holy word. Today's text comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And the word of the Lord says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. The word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. You can all be seated. So, we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon has spent the last four chapters talking about the things That causes us to focus on self and to lose sight of eternity. And he's challenged us to a radical shift in our vision. To focus less on earthly passions and more on God. And he's driving us to the concluding point that is found in Ecclesiastes 12. And that is, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. We've talked week to week as we unpack this book line by line and word by word about the big overarching theme of Ecclesiastes. And it's this, don't just think in the now, because now will soon be gone. Focus on forever. That's what really matters. Remember God in everything you do. Enjoy life and enjoy God. So the thrust of this book is that we be less self-centered and more God-centered. So ultimately, Ecclesiastes is a book about worship. Solomon refers to himself as the preacher throughout this book. So he's preaching a sermon, and as he arrives at today's text, he has a certain type of listener in mind. It's a sermon directed to the person who knows who God is who might even attend worship on a regular basis, or at least when it doesn't interfere with other things, who, after worship uh, is done uh, for the day, they start rating the whole thing like they're uh, a judge on a talent show. They talk about what songs they liked and what songs they didn't like. And they don't remember much of anything about the sermon or the text that was read that day. And they're never really stirred down deep inside by what they hear in God's Word. Now, in Solomon's time, the primary place of worship was the temple. And it was a structure that was literally one of the wonders of the world. It was a massive piece of architectural genius that it took 7 years to build and 153,000 workers. It was decorated with gold and jewels and it would have been awe-inspiring to enter. And I've been in some great cathedrals in Europe. They would pale in comparison to Solomon's Temple. But I've been to Westminster Abbey in in London. Uh, I've been to St. Cyril and Metodi in Macedonia. Uh, to the Nevsky Cathedral in Sofia, Bulgaria. And they're all inspiring places. Uh, And and compared to, uh, uh, I'll tell you though, compared to most small rural churches, we have a beautiful sanctuary here at Carlton Baptist. We do. But ultimately, buildings aren't that important. Where we gather isn't nearly as important as what is happening when we gather. What makes a church a church isn't about the building you gather in. Instead, it's about who is gathered inside and what you do once you're there. The internal, what's inside of you happening, matters more than the external. Listen to this from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And I think this is on the screen. I think I put this in there. a church but God's people are the church and together we're the bricks in this spiritual building and Jesus himself is the cornerstone the foundation that holds it all together and supports it all in place so this space is a beautiful space but this space is not holy The only thing holy about this place is its people. And we're made holy and we're brought into union with each other through the blood of Christ. So this family gathered here together to worship, this spirit building us into a dwelling place for God makes us the church. So Solomon is devoting today's text to what we are to do as God's family as we gather together to worship. Because Scripture is actually really explicit about how we should worship. Now this has nothing to do with the genre of music we sing, okay? It has nothing to do with the tempo or whether we have drums or whether we read from the King James Version or the English Standard Version. It has nothing to do with any of that. But we'll talk more about that as we get into this. Each week, as, as we journey through Ecclesiastes, we've had a different theme. And I'm not going to go through all of these themes uh, for today. Uh, but I, I, I don't want to disappoint you, and I want to have a theme for this week. So here's the theme. This is the theme. Living under the smile of God. Living under the smile of God. Now, our text today contains four commandments for worship. Four commandments for worship. One Guard your steps. Two, watch your mouth. That's a problem for most of us. Three, keep your vows. And four, stand in awe. Okay? We're going to start with number one, guard your steps. Ecclesiastes 5.1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So Solomon's first command for worship is a warning, telling us to guard our steps when we go to the house of God. He's pleading with us to consider the condition of our hearts as we approach the living God. The world will teach you that worship is one of many different extracurricular activities that you can choose whether or not to focus on uh, based on whether it gives you some form of satisfaction, right? It's about me. That's how fools approach God. Remember last week we talked about how the Hebrew word for fool doesn't necessarily mean someone who acts crazy or irreverent. It's someone who is entirely opposed to God's law. He thumbs his nose at the person of God, and he refuses to acknowledge the wisdom and power of God. So what Solomon is doing is he's challenging us to have a countercultural perspective on gathering to worship with other believers to step outside of self-centered thinking and into God-centered thinking. So we read this passage earlier from Romans 12. It said, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of Of your mind. What if instead of thinking of church as a chore we must endure, we began to see this gathering of believers as a community, as a family that we didn't want to do life without? What if instead of having to worship God as a possibility among many other possibilities, we made it a fixed point on our calendars? and in our day planners, and in our phone reminders. In Nehemiah 10.39, the people of Jerusalem said, We will not neglect the house of our God. They made a promise. But now, remember, this house isn't about a physical building. It's about a family of believers built on the foundation of faith in Christ, So they're saying, we're going to support this house with our presence. We're going to support this house with our giving. We're going to support this house with our service. We're making worship a fixed point on our calendars. We don't have to wake up on Sunday and think, I could go do this, or I could go do that, or I could take the kids here, or go see so-and-so, and I could experience this event today. What if we woke up on Sundays and looked at our families and said, we are not going to neglect the house of the Lord When you're using your GPS in your vehicle, you don't get in and say to your phone or to your car or whatever you use, just go wherever you think I might get some good feeling today. That would be foolish, wouldn't it? Because there's no telling where you would end up. No, you define a fixed point, a destination you want to reach. Otherwise, you're just wandering aimlessly and you'll be led down paths that are less satisfying easily, like a fool. The writer is telling us to watch the direction we're walking, to guard our steps, to define our fixed point, and to focus on God and the family of God. What if we changed the way we thought about worship and lived out Psalm 27.4? One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. And the psalmist echoed this in Psalm 84 when he wrote, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk up brightly. O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the one who trusts in you. The psalmist is emphatically saying, this is where I want to be. In the presence of God, with the people of God. I would rather be a doorkeeper here, a a janitor scrubbing toilets than a VIP with a luxury box at the best sporting event. This is where Jesus is. And I want to be where He is so I can experience His glory. Out there, there's darkness. In here, there's light. Out there, there's wickedness. In here, there's blessing. This is a radical mindset. Because I can tell you, when you come to the idea of gathering together to worship... Most people will say, and these are people who, are, who say they're Christians, will say there is anything better than this. Anything is better than this. But the psalmist would trade a thousand days of the best pleasure the world has to offer for one day hearing God's Word and singing songs to God with God's people. And serving God with all his heart. Psalm 34.3 says, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I, I want you to understand, this is it's not about church attendance. It's not about dressing up and showing up. It's about tuning in, getting your heart in time with the drumbeat of Jesus. Because I'm going to tell you, we're surrounded by people who say they are washed in the blood of the Lamb. But they believe they can spend all week drinking all the drink they want. Smoking all the dope they want, looking at all the pornography they want, spreading their racist attitudes all they want, gossiping about others all they want, nursing their grudges all they want. And then they show up on Sunday morning and they hear two verses of Scripture read and boom, they are filled with the Spirit and they're ready to worship. There's no magic button that you can press to be prepared to worship God. Alistair Begg makes a great analogy in regard to this. He said, if you're carrying a glass of water and someone bumps into you, it's water that's going to spill out. If you're carrying a glass of Coke and somebody jumps into you, it's Coke that's going to spill out. Whatever you're putting inside of yourself all week long is what's going to spill out no matter who bumps into you. So we have to prepare our hearts for worship by worshiping and being in the word all week long. This is not, I'll I'll tell you, Daniel and I, we kind of grew up in ministry at a very large church, 2,000 people. And Sunday morning worship was the end zone. And in fact, I heard the leadership there refer to it as the end zone for the week. This is where we scored the touchdown. This is where we pass the offering plate and it's overflowing. This is where we have tons of people coming to the altar. This is where the musical show that's going to be put on is going to be better than any other show in northeast Georgia. It, It was the touchdown. But I'm going to tell you, gathered worship is not intended to be the end zone. It's intended to be the huddle where you gather together and you prepare yourself to go out for the rest of the week and you lay your burdens down and you lay your struggles down and you lay your sins down and you're strengthened and you're encouraged and you're corrected through the hearing of the Word of God and through worshiping with the fellow saints. We need this huddle or we don't have direction. The first command of worship is to guard your steps. And then the second command is this, watch your mouth. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 2 and 3. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Our God is a God who speaks. Hebrews 11.3 says the universe was created by the word of God. And Hebrews 1.3 says that it's held together by the word of his power. Everything we see and everything we can't see is the result of a word spoken by God. And that being said, the Bible, in comparison to other writings, though, is a relatively small book. It contains about 750,000 words. And to keep that in context, the writings of Shakespeare have about 960,000 words. Harry Potter books combined have over a million words. All the books John Piper has written have over 3 million words. But Jesus was limited in his words. John 8.28 says that he only spoke the words the Father gave him to speak. John 16, 12 says he could have spoken more, but he didn't. Ephesians 4, 29 said he only spoke words that gave grace to his hearers. So Jesus' words were centered on God and God's people, building them up, correcting them, teaching them, leading them into relationship with God and each other. If you talk too much, you're eventually going to say something foolish. At our house, we have a, a group text with some of our friends. And sometimes it gets a little out of hand. And my wife will tell you, most of the time, that's because of me. Because I say things that are irreverent, trying to be funny and trying to get attention for myself in the midst of the thread. So a lot of times, I'll be at work and Brittany will be at work and I'll get a, th- a text, I don't know, from Brad or, or, or whoever And it'll be something funny. And Brittany will be at work and we'll be 20 miles apart. And she'll send me a text in another thread that says, don't respond to that. Because she knows I'm about to say something really dumb. If you talk too much, you eventually are going to say something foolish. Verse 3 says, a fool's voice has many words. James 3 says the tongue is a restless evil and full of fire. Proverbs 10.19 says that too many words will inevitably result in sin. We as Christians are called to be little Christ's people growing into the image of Jesus. So if Jesus only spoke what the Father gave him to speak, we have to learn to control our own tongues. So we're called to guard our steps and to watch our mouths. And then third, we're called to keep our vows. Verses four through seven, when you pay a vow uh, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow, Many, there's vanity. So Solomon is talking about our mouths again. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin. Don't say something you said a while ago was a mistake. I read a while back that God doesn't listen to our words through a speaker, but instead he listens to us with a stethoscope. A doctor puts a stethoscope on your chest and on your back. And he hears what is inside you and he's able to draw some conclusions about what's happening inside you based on what he hears. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So we can make all the religious talk we want to make and justify our own goodness before God and man with our words, but God isn't interested in our words. He's interested in your heart. So Solomon takes this and he puts it in the context, the vows that we make. And we've heard people say things like this before. Man, if I could just hit that Powerball, I'd give a million dollars to the church right off the bat. When you know, you know, as soon as you hit that Powerball, you're going to go out and you're going to buy a new truck and jack it up and a pontoon boat and maybe a helicopter or something like that you really, really need probably before you even pay off any of your credit cards. You'll do all that. Or maybe you're in a really emotional worship service and the preaching was actually good that Sunday. Maybe you're visiting another church, right? And, uh, and you said, God, I'm giving my whole life to you. I'm taking up my cross and following you. I'm giving up this or that. I'm doing it all for you. And, and this wave of emotion, right, or, or maybe you were in trouble, or you were sick, or you had a problem, and you said to God, "God, if you'll fix this, then I'll do this and this and this for you." In Matthew five thirty-seven, Jesus tells us the letter: "Yes, be yes, and our no be no." Don't make promises to God that you don't intend to keep. I tell couples all the time when I do premarital counseling with them, I'll tell you one thing: I've have a lot of couples ask me to do their weddings. And, and I always tell them two things. One, I only do a Christian ceremony. If you want a civil ceremony, go see the judge. And I tell them, two, you have to do premarital counseling. And I talk a lot about vows. I did Brent and Amber's. Uh, I'm trying to think. I guess Brent and Amber, I, the only couple here today, or Brent's here, uh, that um, I did their premarital counseling, did their wedding. And I talk a lot about the vows. Because you exchange these vows and you do them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you're calling on God to be your witness to your vows. To testify to the sincerity and the truth of your vows. When our text says, don't make promises that you don't intend to keep. It says that God will become angry and destroy the works of your hands. There are consequences for the sin of empty words and broken promises. So guard your steps, watch your mouth, and finally this, stand in awe. Ecclesiastes 5, 7, God is the one you must fear. When Solomon says God is the one you must fear, he is not talking about terror. He's talking about a deep reverence and a healthy respect for God. We should be filled with a sense of awe at the character of God to realize the depths of our sin and our moral failure and to understand the holiness of the Most High God and to see this great chasm of difference between us. Yet God in His mercy sends His Son Jesus to die on the cross for sins that you and I committed, and He wipes our slates clean so that we can stand before God without the terror of judgment, but a beautifully loving reverence for His superlative nature and His overflowing goodness. Begg wrote, this kind of awe results from the discovery that God knows me through and through. And He knows the sin in my life. And He means to destroy it. And the reason He means to destroy it. And sometimes it's mighty sore as He does. It's mighty painful as He comes to us like a surgeon with a scalpel. But He does it because He loves us with an intensely faithful love. And this weird, extreme paradox of God that He detests sin in us more than we are ever prepared to admit. And yet He loves us in Christ more than we can ever imagine. Psalm 130 verse 4 says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. When the psalmist wrote this, what he's saying is, with you there is forgiveness, so God, I stand in awe of you. Verse 3 in Psalm 130 says, O oh Lord, who should mark iniquities? If you kept a record of our sins, O oh Lord, who could stand? No one. God doesn't just grin and laugh at our sin, nor does He overlook it or forget that we've sinned. The definition of sin has not changed Just because our culture has changed. Just because Jesus did not say something about a specific sin does not mean that it is not sin. Jesus obeyed the law, every jot and tittle of it. And he revered the law because he wrote the law. Jesus honored the law and he completed the law and he fulfilled the law. He did not eradicate it. Sin is sin. No matter what the president says is sinful, no matter what the government says is sinful or not sinful, no matter what your neighbors or your co-workers or your friends says is sinful and not sinful, sin is sin. And God is just and holy, and sin must be punished. If it's not, then He's not just. He's not holy. Sin must be punished. God has a settled hostility towards sin. A consuming wrath that must be satisfied. So there in the cross of Christ, God's wrath towards sin is poured out on one who is sinless. And He rescues us from our own depravity and puts us in right standing with God if we repent of our sins and we believe on Him. So God's wrath and justice towards sin are on display on the cross and also His immense love for sinners like you and sinners like me. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Instead, He gives us forgiveness. We'll sing in just a minute. My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. To fear God is to be filled with a sense of breathtaking awe at the character and the mercy and the kindness of God. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. The great Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, he wrote this. He said, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. He wrote, Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams. Feel His all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and rest in His almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in Him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room for foolishness or the world or Satan or sin. So guard your steps. Watch your mouth, keep your vows, stand in awe. Remember God in the days of your youth. Fear God and keep his commandments. This fear asks one question when we're faced with choices in our lives. And that question is this. Does my Father in heaven approve of this? And you ask it not because you're in terror of Him, but because you're in awe of Him. Because you adore Him. You want to live under His smile with your career choices and your college choices and how you spend your weekends and how you spend your money and with how you spend your time because He's a good Father. If you have kids... you probably have a box at home and it's full of drawings. I think we've probably got a half dozen of those boxes at our house. And some of them are stick figures and suns shining and dogs that look like aliens colored with crayons. There's nothing that would ever hang In a great museum. But that box is filled with treasure in a parent's eyes because your children gave you those things in love. And in the same way, God isn't looking for worshipers who are perfect, but those who will worship Him according to His Word, remembering God and keeping His commandments and doing so out of love for Him. So guard your steps. Watch your mouth. Keep your vows. Stand in awe. Live much in the smiles of God. Enjoy life and enjoy God.